You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today I have a guest, and I'm actually I'm very, very excited about this guest because I'm a big fan of his. Now, he doesn't really, he doesn't know me, <laughs> but, but I've been listening to his podcast for a while. This guest, his name is Rob Gray, and he is an associate professor at Arizona State University, and he is the host of a podcast I like to listen to called the Perception and Action Podcast. And I want to welcome, I want to introduce all of you to him. And if you haven't run across this podcast, it's a pretty, uh, pretty cool one to experience. Welcome my guest, Rob Gray. How's it going, man? Thanks, Rick. Thank you. It's good. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about having you. I love, I found your podcast because I was doing some research on one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and I was trying to look some stuff up on it and I'm going through and I found your podcast and I was like, oh, oh, this <laughs> is good and not good. It's good because I can learn about this constraints led approach to training and coaching. But it wasn't good because while I should have been writing more on the see, <laughs> the constraints, <laughs> I was actually listening to podcasts that had nothing to do with it as I went down a rabbit hole. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm always glad to hear it's useful. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Yeah. You know, you feel sometimes you're just talking to nobody, but uh, it's always it's nice to hear someone. True, I know. Up. And yeah. then you get little messages, and you get little things from people, and you're like, oh, they're here. They do listen. <laughs> <Yes>. So <laughs> yeah, that's great. With that being said, Rob, like, first of all, tell us uh, a little bit about you, who you are, your education and background, and then I want to get into this topic of the constraints-led approach to coaching and training. Yeah, so I'm I'm from Canada originally. Um, I uh, so I have my background. I did kind of a traditional academic uh, degree, PhD, in kind of experimental psychology, and I my focus was on vision. You know how we use visual information to control our actions, and I've kind of gone from that to um, you know really performance psychology. So. Um, I, from that, you know, got a faculty job at ASU and then I, um, kind of, I've really had along with kind of to develop the theory of how people control and acquire skill. Um, I've really been interested in being on the applied side of things. So I've done things like I've worked with Nissan, the car company and doing some of the technology for automated driving and driver assistance. I've worked with the air force working with pilot testing and evaluation. And then, you know, more as I got in my career, I've gotten able to do what I really want to do all along is really focus on sports performance. So yeah. I do a lot of consulting with teams and coach education in sports like baseball and golf and soccer. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to pepper you with some questions <laughs> as we start to get to that then, because uh, you, I'm sure at, at ASU, you've had the opportunity to work with, with your own students and with sports programs there, uh, being able to do consulting work with other people and other, um, you know, D1 schools and some of the professional teams that are out there. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in this idea of a constraints led approach to training. And there's something about this constraints led approach that is interesting. But I guess, first of all, we need to talk about what we're talking about. So what mm -hmm. is a constraint and what is a constraints-led approach? 
Yeah, so a constraint, the idea of a constraint is, so the idea starts with, you know, that it kind of rejecting the idea that there's one correct technique for movement, right? The idea that to perform a skill, there's actually multiple ways to we can do it. Like I can serve a ball, volleyball, underhand, overhand, jump serve, use a different amounts of elbow, wrist, so on. And that with that, you know, that's a good thing. But with that comes kind of this problem that we, you know, famous researcher Nikolai Bernstein identified the degrees of freedom problem. We have too many options now of how to right. move. So a constraint is actually something that the reason we call it a constraint, so it almost sounds negative, is we're trying to take away a particular way a movement solution and getting the athlete to to encourage them to explore and find a better one, right? Um, you know, I, there's a lot, the example I always like to give is in baseball, you know, I work with pitchers sometimes they're really good pitchers, but they're doing this thing where they moving, separating their arm from their body too early when they're throwing. And what that does is put all the force in their elbow, which is really, you know, chance of injury. So the old way that we would try to do that is we give them specific instructions, hold your elbow in, remove, you know, move this way. Now right. what we do is we add a constraint, which is, is something you can be related to the task, the environment, or the individual. The constraint I add is a connection ball. I, I make them hold a rubber ball basically between their arm and their body. And what, what that does now is it takes away the solution of separating the body, the arm too early. Because if you do that, the ball falls out and goes backwards. And I tell them I want it to go forward. So a constraint is something we add to practice to get an athlete to explore different ways to move without telling them how to move, right? We're kind of rejecting the idea that the coach knows the answer. We're, we, the coach is helping the athlete find the answer through this constraints manipulation. So in, in some of this, and I love that you brought up the degrees of freedom, because that's something mm -hmm. that I've been trying to slowly bring <laughs> into the world mm -hmm. of fitness and personal training, that there are degrees of freedom. And that is a very, it's a complexity that is pretty fascinating, actually, mm -hmm. that we, we try to figure out how to walk, stand, move, perform. And mm -hmm. we have all of these options and we need to control them. We need yes. to, in many ways, limit the options so that we can move certain ways. And we can do that with, with, uh, with speed or agility or whatever, uh, that, that we're trying to accomplish now and, and create this kind of coordination. Now, what this is, instead of somebody saying, telling you, this is how you're supposed to do it. There's an idea that that you as an athlete or as an individual can figure it out, right? So that, that you're, you can, you don't have to be told everything. You just have to be given a few constraints and then you yourself can figure out what to do with those constraints that lead you to move in a path or a pattern that makes it a little bit more efficient for you. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly correct. And the, the idea, the fundamental idea is that, you know, another term, self-organization, right? Our body, or, well, if you leave it and, and you encourage it in the right way, it'll organize itself. Uh, the example all, people always use is, is a flock of birds is a great example of self-organization, right? They fly and swoop around. They don't hit each other and they dip, dip and dive. With, there's no one telling them what to do. Right. They're just organizing themselves based on trying to keep away from the other bird beside them. Um, so that's essentially what, you know, the kind of the, this new approach to skill a lot of people are, are getting into is the idea that our body will figure out all the details of what your elbow should be doing, how much you bend and so on. Um, 
you don't need to prescribe that as a, as a coach or, you know, getting the athlete to figure that out kind of consciously, you just have to kind of guide them being, being more of a guide than an instructor. So my basketball coach, when I was a kid at the YMCA, who was very, very focused on getting me to hold the ball directly mm-hmm. underneath my wrist and and shoot. I'm going to tell you, like I was so small, <laughs> I needed two hands just to get the ball to actually leave my hands. So <laughs> there was it would just didn't work for me, but it was like an authoritarian coach who just decided hey, this is the right way that you're supposed to shoot a basketball, and you're saying that there's not necessarily the right way to do things. No, and you know, the more we look at uh, skillful athletes, and you know, the the example I, you know, I I was talking about someone else on this on an on, on, on the other day. You know, if I t- did you just a black on white picture of Roger Federer versus uh, Rafael Nadal, could you tell the difference of who is who? Yeah, because they move in different ways, and when we start to analyze the skillful athletes, we see they're not doing all exactly the same thing. They're doing slightly different things to get the, you know, you could shoot a basketball with a higher arc, you know, or a lower, short, shorter, faster speed. Like, so there's a range of different things that are possible. And when we look at kind of good athletes, we see there's more variability between athletes. And also the key point that we, we like to make in this is there's also variability within yourself, right? You can't be successful in sports by moving exactly the same way every time because mm. the conditions are changing slightly. You're becoming fatigued. Your opponent's doing something different. The weather's changing, right? So in order, even for myself, I need to be able to move and do slightly different things and be adaptable to my conditions. Oh, wow. I like that. I haven't even ever thought about it in that way. That is so true. It's a very good point. All right. So for those of you just coming in, this is Rob Gray, and he is the host of the Perception Action Podcast, and he is a professor at Arizona State University. And today we're talking about the constraints-led approach to coaching or training when you work with people. So I'm going to follow up now, Rob, with uh, a question about Null's model of constraints, which looks a lot like your podcast logo uh, <laughs> when you when you see that written out. And there are three components to us. So can you talk to us about uh, Newell's model and those three separate components, which you kind of talked about just a moment ago yeah. when you were explaining? Yeah. So Carl Newell had this idea. It's actually it comes from developmental research, not sports research. Interestingly, he oh. wanted to challenge the idea that the way that children develop is all kind of pre-programmed by the genetics and just, you know, they go through these certain critical stages, you start walking. His idea that was what skill emerges on its own, right? Happens on its own in the face of the constraints you're faced. And he identified three basic types of the constraints. There's the environment. So we're talking about kind of general things like weather, the, <coughs> excuse me, the surface friction. Are you playing on grass? Have they cut it recently? Um, the organism constraints. So my, what you bring to the table in terms of your height, your speed, your action capacity. And then the main one that coaches and trainers influence are task constraints. What are the rules of the sport? What am I allowed to do? What is my goal? Uh, what kind of ball am I playing with? Am I playing futsal with a small ball or soccer mm-hmm. with a regular soccer ball? So his idea that is that we kind of solve these movement problems based on the constraints around us. And, this is kind of important for a lot of reasons. We, you know, 
what we do is as human beings, we kind of optimize our behavior around the constraints. So one of the examples, you know, I work in baseball a lot. So if I give you a task of hitting off a pitching machine that's set on the same speed all the time, that's a constraint. Right. What you're going to learn is how to hit 80 miles, 85 mile an hour fastballs. You're not going to learn how to hit when the speed's changing, right? So we need to make sure we manipulate the constraints so you develop kind of this, as that word I use again, adaptable skill. You can adjust to different conditions. So that was his idea that the triangle on my logo, yeah, it's definitely based on his, these three task organism and environmental constraints. Gotcha. So yeah. what would um, what would some of these examples maybe look like within um, within a, a fitness or a weightlifting, um, uh, not just sporting, if the, if you have any examples that you can relate to? Because I love what you talk about when you say, I want to figure out how to apply these things as opposed mm -hmm. to just conceptually, you know, know that these things exist, but how do you make these applications? And I think that's what I'd like to get to now. Like, what are the applications, how can these be used? What are examples that fitness professionals can use to help people move better without necessarily saying, you know, keep, I don't know, your heels on the ground, or, you know, when you, when you lift up into a clean, make sure you're not doing a bicep curl, but you're, you're adding mm -hmm. this kind of shrug and tuck. Yeah, that's a great question. A great question. I think, you know, the, the key point I'd like to make, it, though, is it's not just letting the athletes do everything on their own. There's still, you know, a critical role for the coach to identify, you know, I don't like that. You know, that could cause injury. I, there's a better way to do it. It's just how they they take that information and go. So, yeah, there's some really good examples of, you know, there's I think there's a good study on weight training using constraints led approach. So if I want you to keep the bar closer to your body, on a deadlift or something you say mm -hmm. you know the typical way is we give you very internal instructions about how to move the constraints that approach way it could do something like put chalk on the bar and say your new task is to lift while leaving a chalk mark on your shirt right hmm. and the key difference is i haven't told you how to solve the problem right i haven't told you how to move right. differently all i've given you is this new goal right um the other kind of examples we give you know we we kind of do some i again with baseball pitchers, sometimes they don't land square on their, their front foot, kind of rotate right. a little bit. So what we actually do is we take them in the sand, we go basically let make them throw in, a, in the sand pit. And what that does is it kind of exaggerates it. And so now we've kind of added this, change the constraint of the environment, the surface that is kind of encouraging them not to do that anymore, <laughs> right? Because they're going to fall over now. It's, it's actually worse. So that, that's a kind of the key idea, thinking of ways, what can I add to the environment? It can say be rules or instructions, change in equipment, change in the, the layout. Um, you know, um, one of the tools I like uh, is, you know, with weightlifting is things like aqua bags where they have water you yeah. know, in a container you're holding. Now that's adding a constraint where you can't get too off balance, right? Because the water is going to slide all over. Um, so again, that we're adding these new things to the practice environment, the training environment, without telling the athlete the solution to, to what we want them to do. Specifically, or move your body in this way, we've added something that's encouraging them to try something different. I like it. Let me ask you a question about the, the pitching, the, the example that you gave, the pitcher and they land in the sand. Um, does that initially lead to less effective pitching outcomes 
-hmm. And is that kind of the the goal where we say, all right, well, you know, you're landing this way, your pitch isn't going to be as fast, or it's not going to be as on target. Your job is to land this way and still make sure that you can throw a fastball or, Mm -hmm. you know, pick your corners in the strike zone. Yeah, that that's an excellent point, Rick. I, something I like to emphasize, you know, the expression I used to like to use from learning is messy, right? In order yeah. to learn, you need to make mistakes Good. and look bad, right? A lot of the training and coach practice we do is performing, right? We're doing everything perfectly and right and everything at the same time. That's not when you get better, right? That gives you confidence yeah. and there's still place for that. But if we want you to learn something new, yeah, it's going to require you're doing it completely wrong <laughs> for a while. And then you're like, okay, how what can I do differently to, to, to make this work? Get this ball going forward, get the pitch going forward and me not falling over. I got to do something differently. So that's, yeah, that's exactly the idea. You know, we need to um, get you to, in, in, you, there's information you get from making mistakes that help you get better. Now, do you preface that, um, with the athlete prior to going into it? Do you, do you tell them, like, hey, I don't. You're not going to throw strikes every time when we do this little, you know, uh, sand land mechanics, um, and then talk them through this same thing. Like, it's it's not going to be perfect, and it's going to take some time. This is, you know, one step back to go two steps forward. But we're going forward. Stop focusing on, you know, make sure you're not focusing on what's going wrong, but only focus your primary attention on the landing of the foot. And then we'll resolve how the ball leaves the arm and, and then where it goes. I mean, and and are these the conversations we need to have with our clients when we're working with them and we have to make the bar lighter, we have to slow down movement, those kind of things? Yeah, for sure. That that That's really a critical point. I, I agree. You know, we have to, especially like in the team sports I work with, sometimes I think athletes, especially younger ones, think there's always a scout sitting in the stands, right? So they're they're afraid to look bad sometimes. Yeah. So we need to set this stage, right? We're, this is a really hard activity. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. That's what we want, right? So I, I agree. And, and same with, um, you know, in the gym, you know, this is, you're really going to struggle doing this. And that's the whole point of it. So yeah, I think we do need to have that, you know, sometimes the term we use in, in, in sports science is self-regulation, right? We need the athlete to understand mm-hmm. what the goal of the practice activity is and get them involved sometime in the discussion about the planning and how it went and, and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I think it's also interesting you talked about the team dynamics. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's, you know, if I'm working and my peers are around me and they're seeing me, that's probably worse than having a scout there sometimes is that my my peers are faster than me now they're hitting more consistently they're jumping higher they're moving better and i see this a lot when we do performance drills with people in workshops with trainers and we pull out the agility ladder and i can talk to them about how to land i talk to them about arm action what i'd like to see and then the moment we say go and we have two ladders lined up next to each other it's no longer focus on the movement (laughs) It is, can I move faster through these rungs than the person next to me? And mm-hmm. that's where we like to have that conversation. We, we talk about knowledge of uh, performance and knowledge of results, mm-hmm. right? And this is where I'm trying to push the knowledge of results out. Like, mm-hmm. did you get there faster? That's not something I care about. I care about how you do it initially. 
And mm-hmm. so learning how to do things, and yes, there are certain, um, there's variability in how that can be performed. But the problem is, is that a lot of times, you know, do you want to be fast or do you want to be coached? Mm-hmm. And that's a big deal for coaches is whether or not you can slow down enough so that you can implement some of the, the uh, cues that I've just provided. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a few uh, uh, points there I, I would uh, you know resonate with. You know, one of the I think your to your last point, it, it, the, the, this kind of a beneficial variability in moving in different ways is not to deny that there's I call them invariants or sometimes the word attractors. There's there's certain things that have to be there, right? You need to transfer force effectively. You need to do these different things, or you're not going to be able to run fast, <laughs> right? They, there's certain right. things that have to be there. The other things around that can vary, but there has to be certain, you know, fundamental key features. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, I, a pressure can be good in a lot of different ways, but I think, you know, having peers, you know, having too much, you're right, can be, um, you know, it can break <laughs> break the skill apart. Uh, um, it's good to prepare people for pressure of the competition, but if you're right, if you're trying to achieve specific coaching goals, it can be that can be um, the social pressure from other people is very, very strong effect. Right, right, yeah. for sure. Uh, I don't want to keep you much longer here, and I know that I'm going to have you back, and we're going to be talking about queuing. So let's wrap up this idea of constraints-led approach and just an overview again of what it is and how we can implement it. So if you can just give us an overview, and I know this is a deep subject, and yeah. we're like, hey, you okay. got 20 minutes yeah. to talk about it? So <laughs> yeah. So yeah, constraints-led approach to me is, you know, there's some basic principles. You start with, you know, it's it's used to kind of, you want to take away something the athlete's doing in or performer's doing in order to move them somewhere else, right? So you add a constraint. So another example is, you know, in soccer, if I have a player that's holding the ball and not attacking and just dribbling in the middle of space, I can, can make them play in a smaller field right? Or with more players, that's a change in constraint. I'm taking away that solution because they're going to be players all over them now, right? So they have to interact. So I'm I'm taking away something that I don't like and encouraging them to explore and try different things without telling them exactly what I want them to do, right? So that's that's kind of the fundamental constraints that approach. And, you know, there's a, there's some really good books out coming out on it and for specific approach and i didn't mention i you know i gotta get my plug so i have a new book where i went there's a whole chapter uh, how we learn to move my new book i have a whole chapter on the constraints that approach and um some examples and kind of these key principles ah i love it thank you for plugging the book uh, i definitely want to get in on that one uh that's amazing so for for those of you that uh, as we're wrapping this up, I want to point out that this is Rob Gray from Arizona State University. He's got a podcast called the Perception and Action Podcast, and it's a lot about um, performance and motor learning, motor behavior, uh, and and learning the kind of you know, optimizing ways to uh, to to perform. And that's why I like listening to the podcast because he's he's smart guy, he's easy to listen <laughs> to, and I feel like I learned something when I when I walk away from the episode. So, with that being said, Rob, uh, to sign out, do you have any way that if people have questions, they want to reach out to you, or if you're on social media, if they want to follow you, that you want to provide? 
Yeah, I think that just the easiest way is I have a website, perceptionaction.com, that I uh, where I have all the information about the podcast, my book, and then all my social media. My email, robgray at asu.edu, you know, is, is a good way to contact me. But I am on Twitter a lot <laughs> if you want, if you're, if you're not too uh, toxic environment for you. Um, okay. You can find all the information there. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right. Uh, Rob, thank you. And for those of you who are with us, thank you so much for sticking with us, listening to the podcast. If uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can do so. I'm most active on Instagram at dr.rickrichie, or you can email me directly, rick.richie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, at nasm.org. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast. <laughs>